Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Gaming Moguls podcast, the only podcast where we come up with a kitschy inside joke tagline and by episode five already forget to come up with a new one. I'm your host, Mark Teske, along with my millennial co-host, Mr. Jake Klopfenstein. Jake, how's it going today? I'm doing wonderfully, Mark. How are you? I'm excellent, Jake. Thank you. Excited to talk today. We got some interesting things to chat about. Absolutely. What we're going to talk to you about today is the games we've played this week. We're going to briefly give some first impressions on High Frontier. Mark's going to go into a bit of a rant about print and play. And then finally, we're going to talk about maintaining a collection. It should be fun. Start it off, Mark. What'd you play this week? Well, for starters, I finally got to cross something off a bucket list of sorts. Uh, We vowed Mm -hmm. that at the start of the new year, there were certain games that we were going to focus on. And one of them that was on my list that I really wanted to focus on and get in a play of was Viticulture. I know I late to the party on this one. Everybody (laughs) loves the game. For whatever reason, I just never played it. It always got played at another table, and I got to play it last week. And, man, that's a great game. I love it. I thought it was great. For those at home who do know Viticulture, we did play with, I have the Essential Edition, but I also have the Tuscany Essential Edition expansion. And when we played with Mark, we played with the expansion board, but we did not play with any of the other modules, the Fancy Workers or the Orange Off-Board cards. But what'd you think, Mark? You liked it? So we have a friend, Eric, who's notorious for his enjoyment of the game is directly tied to how good he does on a game. So if he wins a game, it's the greatest game ever. If he finishes in last place, oh, that game was terrible. So by that measure, I loved the game a lot. Yeah, you did well. You did really well. <laughs> you you absolutely destroyed us. It just seemed like you were a step and a half ahead every single time because we were all clustered right right together. But you just got ahead early and you stayed that way. You know, I read the board coming new into it saying, OK, the cutoff is at 25 points, which is not a lot. And you look around, there's several places where you can get one, two, three, four points at a gasp. So I sort of decided that if I could make a rush at the finish line and just pick up every little victory point along the way that I could, that I would cross the finish line before everybody else was ready who was playing the long game. And that's exactly how it played out. And we were all stuck with beautiful wine in our cellars and you were fresh out and took the lead. I was proud of you, Mark. You did well. Yep. I was uh, I was riding my fancy little sports car off into the uh, wine country foothills, as they say. The Italian foothills. Absolutely. Yeah, that was a high point in my last uh, week or so of gaming. Another one is that we have a little group that gets together. We call it Train Thursday, although it tends to never happen on Thursday. And we get together <laughs> and play train games. It's often 18xx. But this particular time, we decided to get a lot of other train games in and Boy, you brought some great ones on Jake that I'd never played before and loved them. Yeah, I hope you liked it because you actually ended up getting a copy of it for Christmas. Uh, So we originally played North American Railways by Pierre Sylvester. In this game, it's somewhat similar to an 18xx game where there is shared ownership of different corporations that no one technically fully owns. And what these companies are doing is they're using their capital to buy different routes And this is represented by different cities that they're actually going to buy to add a certain amount of revenue to the company that's going to pay out each turn. Um, I thought it was great, though, and we played it again at Wednesday last night. It was wonderful. It's what I've always wanted a lot of other light stock market games to be, yet for some reason they fall short in some meaningful way. Like I I think of games like Stockpile or Klondike Rush, which are admittedly super light. But both of those fall short in some way, Stockpile being incredibly random and Klondike Rush being a very predictable stock market. This was none of those things and all of them all at once. 
I loved it a lot. I also had a thought, too. It's sort of the uh, what I would call the middle chunk of 18xx. It's kind of omits the hardest parts and the easiest parts of 18. Like, right. The route building is the pipes that new players love the most. Building routes and running trains. It, yeah, it omits that. It also omits the sharp elbows of the train rush as well. Right. But it still does encapsulate capitalization, having other people cross invest into companies, investing and in tanking a company just to hurt them. I absolutely love North American Railways. I think it's one of my new favorite economic games. And it played in 35 minutes, 45 minutes. It was fast. Yeah, nice and quick, small box. Unfortunately, though, uh, if you're going to commit to the small box, you also have to commit to the uh, little paper dollars that are in there right. instead of dragging poker chips around. So well, maybe that's a great that's... use for those mini poker chips you've been uh, so there excited you go. about. And what's also frustrating about the paper money is everything, the smallest increment of money in this game is $100. That is a one. They just added two extra zeros after every single number in this game for unapparent reasons. So it's just kind of for thematic reasons. But like $500 isn't enough to start a train company. No, I don't think <laughs> like even even back in the day. I don't think uh think think James J. Hill was starting train companies with $1,000. It reminds me a lot of uh, I'm a pinball collector and fanatic and Star Trek The Next Generation pinball. They purposely added another three zeros to make it just these giant numbers. So What'd you score on the game? Oh, 18 and a half billion. <laughs> okay, cool. What, what that accomplished? There's the smallest increments, hundred. So other than that, I would highly recommend this game. And it's pretty cheap too. I probably shouldn't tell you that after I got you it for Christmas, but uh, it's all good. North American Rose is great. I guarantee we're going to uh, probably spend the same amount on each other's Christmas presents. So <laughs> we'll talk about <laughs> we'll that We'll actually later. talk about what I got you later. So yeah, absolutely. On the super light end of the scale, uh, we also got a chance to play Northern Pacific, which is actually a very abstract game about building routes from Minneapolis to Seattle, where you put cubes out on the map. And if you, if the route comes through there, you get cubes back plus more, which represents profit. And once it reaches the other side, whoever has the most cubes wins. Very simple. Right. And that's when the rubber hits the road that you realize that it's actually a pretty strategic and pretty nasty little game. Right. Well, this game was originally a winsome game, which is a company that does really limited releases at Essen every year, which is a large game fair for those who don't know. And the goal of this game is exactly as you said, you're just investing in either routes or connecting the Minneapolis to Seattle with no branches. And it's wickedly cheap, easy to teach. I, I hesitate to call it a it's not a train game in the way that a lot of our listeners are going to think of train games, meaning that there's no stock market and nope. you're not running routes for money and so forth. But it's a train themed game that honestly could be abstracted into just about any kind of network or route. I mean, it could be an Internet building game. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> be the same game. But is there a better theme for route building games than trains? I can't come up with one. Well, especially where we live. I mean, we're in Minneapolis. Your wife lived in Seattle for some amount of time, so it's probably double as cool for you. Coast to coast, you know, I you actually go. could use that as justification for picking that up down the road here. So, oh, Easy. honey, it's our hometowns. Come on. Yay. How about that? <laughs> yeah. That, it's Northern Pacific. And that was designed by Tom Russell. I thought it was a great one. Yeah. And finally, we closed out the day. You had to leave early. Speaking of lovely partners, you had to leave early and attend I to yours, I leaving you out of the game of 18 Lilliput that we played later that night. That was my second run through on it and taught two new players. I taught J-Mac and uh, Shirdo. And uh, boy, we had just a fantastic time playing it again and love this game quite a bit. I think your enjoyment of it directly depends on what you perceive it being. If you come into it thinking that it is a light 18xx or an 18xx at all, I think you're going to be disappointed. 
if you come into it looking at it saying it's an interesting hybrid between 18xx and a euro game and you actually like both sides of the fence like the people we were playing with did we had a fantastic time doing it yeah i'm still really mad i've missed out on this game i've been adjacent to it twice or three times now and it's sitting on my shelf i was actually the original one who kickstarted the kickstarter and i bought three copies one for you one for me one for jmac and i've still yet to actually play it yeah one of the ongoing challenges we always have in our gaming group is that jake and i are the game runners and so if we have a group that requires two tables it's always jake at one table and me at another which means that we don't get to play together as often as we would like yeah it's actually kind of funny i do play a lot of games every year i think i was just about just over half that I played with you last year, which you think would be more, seeing as how much we talk about the same games. Yeah, and I think that what we're going to have to do is really commit to getting you to play that soon, because this is a game I want to talk about at greater length on this podcast, because I think it checks a lot of the boxes that our listeners would be interested in. Yeah. And um, we just need to color that out and say, you know, come hell or high water, this thing's going to happen. So yeah. just a couple of quick thoughts. 18 Lilliput is a card-based route-building game that has a lot of 18xx flavor in it, but also takes an action selection mechanism straight out of Euro gaming and combines the two. And the net result is actually a pretty restrictive, pretty challenging puzzle to try to math out how you can navigate the limited number of actions. As it turns out, the most valuable asset in the game are turns, not money or trains or something like that. So managing your turns to do the most that you can in the few turns that you have is is paramount to doing well in this. And timing is super important, too. Finally, the other uh, really, really nasty asset of the game is the token game and where you put stations to block other people. And there is absolutely the case where somebody can start a company and magically block your route by plopping something right in the middle of your route by taking an open city and going with it. But again, yeah, I think it's an interesting challenge to manage that and cannot wait to play this with you. Right. And I do believe this is a kind of detour from 18xx games, as in the cities do not exist when the game first starts, correct? You're building them out of cards. Correct. Literally, you have cards on the table and you place them out on a grid on the table. So there's no map. The map evolves into whatever anybody makes it into. Uh, The only rule is you have to follow something called the checkerboard rule, where cities cannot be orthogonally adjacent to each other. You always have to have some plain track but from between cities so that you always have a chance to form branches from city to city in the future. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. I think it is an absolutely beautiful looking little game and it comes in a tiny little box. It's funny because you have to bring poker chips anyway. So kind of undoes the fact that the box is small, but. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, for sure. And price wise, too, uh, you know, given that a lot of 18x game, 18xx games are not horribly affordable. You know, this one's a nice, easy thirty five dollars. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to play. And it's probably one of the closest to scale 18xx games of any game. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> By the way, you know, I never read uh, any of Gulliver's Travels and so forth as a kid. It obviously has a Lilliputian theme, a la Gulliver's Travels. And I actually really love the theme. I think it's just kind of whimsical and fun and cute. And the characters are funny in it. They represent privates. And uh, it's just it's an enjoyable thing. And I I had to laugh to our friend J-Mac, who's a uh, sincere fellow, shall we say. He was actually singing along with it. He was enjoying so much as he kind of token somebody out. He was singing a little tune as he was placing stuff. And I I just chuckled inwardly. He was having so much fun. (laughs) He's as nice as they come. I'd I'd pay money to see him being mean to somebody else. That's hilarious. Oh, it was great. (laughs) He would just kind of chuckle and token somebody out. And then he'd hum a little tune. As he was doing it. (laughs) That's hilarious. That's awesome. 
It was awesome. Unfortunately, due to our playing at different tables last night, you did not get to try out my new hotness, Gugong. But I saw it. Man, that game is overproduced. It's gorgeous. The underside of the box is beautiful, which you don't use at any part of the game, correct? No, <laughs> no. It's, just, the ins- it's pretty. The inside of the sleeve is printed. Yeah, I don't know why they bothered with that, but OK. You know, tactically, it's really wonderful to play with because, you know, the start player marker is a heavy metal coin. The tiles that you use are easily by double the thickest tiles I've ever seen. You know, oh, I mean, wow. they're they're like quad thick tiles. I mean, I think they're solidly half a centimeter thick. They're crazy. Great artwork. Great production. So what Gugong is, is Gugong is a worker placement game based on corruption in the Forbidden City of China. The idea was that there were bribes that would take place that were made punishable by death, but the corrupt officials found a way to work around that system through a series of gift giving. Like if you gave me a gift of a jade statue and I gave you a paper fan back, that was sort of a, hey, we gave each other gifts. That wasn't bribery. And this practice is over now, right? Uh, for sure. Yes. Nobody <laughs> does never that happens anymore. happens anymore at all. Okay. Got it. Got it. So the workers that you play with are not workers per se. They're the cards in your hand. And what and it's the gift giving is really what the worker placement is. So you have to give a gift that's better than the one on the table in order to take that action in that space. If you don't, oh. there's a penalty involved. You have to give two gifts, which might mean two cards, or you have to send some of your servants away to kind of go work for the guy to make it okay that you're giving him a crappier gift. If you meet the criteria of having given a better gift, then you get to do the action on that card. Uh, These cards also have some actions printed on them so that if you have the action printed on the card and you're you're doing the action in the location where you gave the gift, you actually get to do two actions per turn, which is also super fun. It's a two-dimensional worker placement game in that you first select what action you're going to do, then you also select to what level you're going to do it. By the more people that you commit to that action, the better quality of that action you get to do. You have a pile of servants, and once you do the action, you can essentially do a wimpy version for free, or you can commit some servants to it to be able to do it at a higher level, like you can take more steps or get more rewards or move more spaces or something like that. So really enjoyed the first play. I did horribly at it. Oh, my goodness. Hashtag. Well, you also you were the teacher of Gugong. Yeah. And I take a lot of pride in my teaching of games, and this was not my best work. I just got this game the day before, and I was really excited to play it. So I rushed it to the table without having gone over the rules as thoroughly as I should have. So there were a lot more questions than there should have been had I had my, my teach polished a little better. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I, I thought you were just going to bring it to kind of show me what it looks like. And then all of a sudden I look over and you're running it. Yeah. What the heck? Whatever. Let's do it. <laughs> They're our friends. We can just put them through bad teaches. Who cares? They won't leave. Now, admittedly, that was at the expense of playing Agricola. That was probably sitting on the bench. So once again, poor Agricola gets pushed to the background once again. I win again. I've pushed it back again. <laughs> now, what I am most excited about, though, is one that has been getting pushed to the background forever and ever and ever. Made it out not once, but twice over the holidays break. And that was had wind wrapped all around it. We are referring to the Phil Eklund Sierra Madre Games magnum opus of High Frontier. Absolutely. Holy moly. Yes. Let's start with a couple of asterisks on this on this conversation. Yeah, we, we got to couch this one because we, we have to explain where we're at with this game. Right. We have played it. I've only played it once. You've played it twice. We've only played the basic game. And this game registers as a 4.75 on BGG in regards to weight, which is a one to five scale for those who don't know on board game. This Geek. is easily the heaviest game that I own. 
Yeah, and I'm sure there's a bunch of rules that we got slightly wrong, which may change some aspect of the game. Yep. That being yeah. said, I would love to talk about this game. I am so excited. Yeah, games like that, you just you don't learn in one or two or three or five no. playthroughs. It takes multiple playthroughs where every playthrough you just you shoot for getting a few less things wrong and doing a few things a little better to eventually yeah. where you're playing at a higher level. You're actually playing the game several plays through and. I personally love that when it takes a while to even uncover the game. Right. Absolutely. And I think this game gives you that in spades. Oh, yeah. Why don't you give us a little background about it? Sure. I would categorize this as Elon Musk in a box. Mm -hmm. It's uh, you are own space billionaire that you may like more. Yeah, you're a crazy space venture capitalist that's trying to exploit the solar system for your own goods. And by the way, this is the most fleshed out solar system that has ever been put in a box game before. The full map is solidly three foot by six foot, would you say? Three foot by yeah, five foot? easily. It, it dwarfed John's table. And it's a yeah. big size table. That yeah, table's about the size of a door. Ginormous. What they've done is they've gone out and mapped out every single celestial rock, <laughs> I swear, in the solar system. And they've put the, all the routes on how to get there and all the possible hazards you could get there. And by the way, they also use that to abstract things like gravity and thrust that's needed and changes, of course, that's needed to get there all in one map. And what you want to do is you want to figure out a way to accumulate the technology so that you can leave Earth's orbit. You want to develop your funds, if you will. Funds take the place in forms of what are called water tanks. And water is the universal currency because water is actually what's used to power your drive systems on your spaceship as well as used to buy things. So you develop your economy, you build your spaceship, you decide where you're going to go. You go there, you prospect to see if you find any raw materials. If you do, then you build a factory there and start producing better technology. And then you continue on your voyage to the next rock. Yeah. And once you've developed a certain number of factories out in the black, At that point, you're done. Uh, This game is set somewhere between modern times and I would say the universe of the expanse. So there's no, you know, there's no green aliens in this one. There's no it's literally like you start out with something that's very similar to 1960s NASA and you develop stuff that's probably within the next hundred years of development, maybe or 200 years. So it's in the I would say it's in the near future of space exploration. Yeah, it didn't make it seem like there were humans living on Mars, but people were definitely setting up factories to send down different materials to the world economy, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And there was, you know, you look at the technology advances, there are certain things that we don't have now yet. Like, you know, we don't have we don't have solar sails and we don't have fusion drives and so forth, but there's no warp drives coming out there and laser beams and (laughs) green aliens, (laughs) space lions, all that stuff. Yeah, it's not science fiction. It's pretty realistic near-term science fiction, I guess, if you will. And I I actually like that more than way far future green alien science fiction. I love that near, like, this is actually a thing that we could do with this. I don't know if you've seen that crazy, like, silver star hopper thing that Elon Musk is building down in Texas right now. No, I ignore Elon Musk. Oh, goodness. I, I can't believe this is a real thing, but it is. I mean, it looks like something straight out of 1950s science fiction. And uh, I love that we live in that world. And that's the world we're living in in High Frontier. Yeah, absolutely. I really liked this game. I have one main complaint, which is going to come at the end. But some of the things that I thought was awesome about it was it's this giant voyage of space. I drove my little spaceship to Mars, did some prospecting at all the different sites of Mars, owned all of it. I planted my company's flag in each one of those. And then I returned home. 
I'm sure people who've played this game before would tell me how strategy-wise, how bad that was. But it was cool. I went to Mars. I came home. It was so cool. And it was hard. I had to calculate a lot. I had to figure out how much fuel I'd need. I had to gather more resources on Mars to go home. It was well, a wonderful. And to be fair, you did actually collect an achievement worth three victory points by doing Absolutely. exactly that. I mean, you don't collect that award till you make it home again. Yeah, absolutely. And so just the fact that you're actually voyaging through space and you're thinking about it and all these routes, all these different webs of ways that you can get from point A to point B, depending on your your different thrusters you have and kind of your time frame on how long you're actually willing to take to get back home or out there was really cool. I set up my mission such that I was going to try to go to Mercury. I don't know why. I just I think it was because I got a really cheap solar sail in the auction. And the mm-hmm. solar sail is really efficient and a really good thruster once you get really close to the sun, because then the sun's rays essentially push you along. And to make and it Mercury to Mercury, Mercury is close to the sun. Mercury is close to the sun. And there is a <laughs> lot of what I guess I would call toll booths along the way. There are places where you have to expend a certain amount of fuel to continue going on. And to go to Mercury, there's a lot of those. If you actually carry a lot of fuel along with you and have a very inefficient kind of big, dumb NASA style rocket, You can't really carry enough fuel along with you to get there, land and get back. So you have to take advantage of something like a solar sail to pull you in tight. The problem was, is I set my goal at just seeing if I could get there. And so once I got there, I realized that I still had to have enough fuel to get back off the planet surface. I had to use my big dumb rocket to get off the surface and then use my solar sail to get back home. So I still had to carry so much fuel that my flyweight rocket now was so heavy that it wasn't very efficient. And that's one of the interesting points of the game and is how it manages fuel. Space travel is all calculated in something called delta V. That means change in velocities. And it's all about like how much weight do you have and how much do you change your velocity in order to change direction or go into a different orbit. And the way that High Frontier handles that is you have a board that once you build your rocket, you know how heavy your rocket is and you know how much fuel you have in it. And depending on how much how heavy that entire wet weight is, meaning rocket plus fuel, depends on what your fuel economy is. So every time you do a burn, you may have to burn two water tanks just to move one toll booth. But if you're super light, you may be able to go from toll booth to toll booth in one sixth of a water tank because you're right. so light. You can do some Delta V in very small amounts of fuel. And that's right. one of the interesting problems to solve throughout the game. Right. And so that's what's interesting is to imagine the weight thing. Imagine a zigzag that is like almost like a frequency of like a focal ring that's oscillating and then goes down to zero, a degrading oscillation. Every point along the bottom point of that degrading oscillation is the count of your weight. And so there's a whole bunch of, depending on the free, how much it actually oscillates, that's how many nodes there are to click down on to burn fuel. So as you're saying, yeah. if you're really light and you're at that bottom part where it's really, really, really oscillating in that in that curve wave, that's kind of the best way to explain it. It's a big zigzag. One and there's a bunch of stops on that zigzag. There's a bunch of steps of fuel on that zigzag. Yes, absolutely. And if you're lighter, one fuel tank goes way further than if you are stupid heavy. And so at the top part, and you're burning eight fuel for some big, dumb chemical rocket, that, that's eight fuel at that high, heavy freighter weight. But when you're that light little skiff light, you just spend one little sixteenth of a fuel tank to get your going. Oh, Jake, you're talking dirty to me saying degrading oscillation. <laughs> was that was that correct? I, I will apologize for yeah, the viewers. Yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah, an engineer. No. I'm I, no. I'm a food scientist by training. So that was, that was excellent for a food scientist. Yeah, that was Thank good. You. Um, yeah. So you, if you're a super heavyweight, like let's say you take some really big, powerful rocket and you take a factory with you and you take the exploration stuff you need to establish that factory, 
uh, sorry, it's actually called a refinery. But if you take a refinery and the exploration stuff, you might be so heavy that it will take you two water tanks just to do a single burn. And the weight of all that stuff pushes you up into that. And pretty soon you're in a case where it's a very expensive proposition to even go make pretty short hops. So a lot of ways that you manage that is you really have to understand what your mission is, where you're going and how you're going to get there. And a lot of that is driven by plan and plan, 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 because there are there's a one way to build a rocket that's appropriate for going to certain planets, completely a different way and going in another planet. Another thing we should bring up on this one is that in much the same way, if you go on a cross-country road trip, you don't bring along all of your fuel with you for make the whole road trip. You'll stop at gas stations along the way. High Frontier does the same thing. It's just that gas station is maybe a rock-covered asteroid somewhere between Mars and Jupiter. And you stop there and you land and you take some time to refuel and get water off of that surface and away you go. So hey, I will say there's an asterisk here because I totally agreed with that. I was like, oh, that makes sense. I'll just set up a bunch of different gas stations and then I'll use them later. What I realized is, Mark, you do go on a cross-country road trip, but instead of bringing all the fuel along, you bring along gas stations with you to drop yeah. at certain areas <laughs> and then you refill. Well, yes and no. I mean, yeah, that's true. You have to it's, have it's, it's the, more um, along the lines of if you're going to if you're hiking, yeah. you don't bring all the water you need. You bring a water filtration system so you can use the water that exists elsewhere. Right. Yes, that's that's an excellent way of putting it. You have to bring along with what's called an ISRU unit, something with low ISRU value. That means in situ refueling unit. That means that we can go to a planet and use the resources there in order to refuel our ship. And those things, the better ones are heavy. And mm-hmm. So you have to drag that along with you if you want to refuel when you get someplace. Right. And then once you actually get there and you do set up your refinery, your factory, it opens up a whole new world. So the cards that you have to build your rockets, they're considered patents. That's what you're going to do. And we're going to touch a bit on how you actually get these cards because it's our main complaint with the game. These patents, there are certain patents that are better than these base patents, but they cannot be manufactured on Earth because reasons i think is gravity or like they need some special it needs to be built out in space for some weird reason but once you build a factory you can wire these patents these upgraded patents to your factories and they can construct it there for you and make these incredible thrusters the incredible refiners these incredible uh isru robo guys to do stuff and those are on the back side of the patent cards so that's a big reason that you're going to these different planets in search of certain minerals, because let's say you have this wonderful back patent of a patent that you have that needs M-type resources. You're going to go to a world that has M-type resources to build this and hopefully put it on your rocket. So now you can go way further than you can with whatever limited resources that you have. Yeah, and that's uh makes the entire game more efficient. You can travel farther. You can search more efficiently. All of this technology that you can invent out in space is better than the stuff you can bring from Earth. So now suddenly everything becomes easier and it ramps the game up to be quite a bit quicker. Absolutely. I would say that the game itself, the theme is 15 out of 10 for me. Man, I love the theme. It's so interesting to me. And that's what drew me in in the first place. The flow of the game, the the rules themselves, at least, and we're talking about the base game. This game is as tough as you want to make it because there are modules you can start gluing onto it that pushes this into ludicrous simulation. But we were playing the base game. The rules overhead is actually a lot lighter than I would have expected. It's there's only eight or so actions that you could do, of which only three or four make sense at any given time. 
The iconography is pretty understandable and pretty straightforward. Once you know what it is, once you learn the iconography, it's pretty easy to read the map. But right. you have to you learn. You can the definitely get lost in the maze of the game because it's just such a big board. It kind of feels like a map where you're tracing some small routes on a road trip, and you're like, "What town is this? Where do I take a left?" But yeah, completely. Once you know how to read it, it's very easily grokkable. Yeah, the part that I think we both, even though we both loved it, I think there's a part of it that. I think we didn't like because I don't think we fully understood its impact or how to leverage that part of the game. And that was the the auction mechanism in it. Yes. And so the other thing I'd like to point out on this is I don't think it's the worst mechanism. It's just probably not the mechanism I don't know as much as the designer of this game, Phil Eklund. So I don't know. Maybe he has better ideas in this. Maybe he did play around with it. But at least to my perception, I would have rather done a different mechanism here. And so what you're doing in this game is to get those patents that are either rockets, robots, what are they called? Robonauts. And then there's refineries. Those are kind of what you need. The Robonauts actually search for stuff on the planets and the refineries are actually what you, yeah. yeah. And the refineries are actually what you discard to set up a factory, correct? That Uh, and a robot. Mm -hmm. Yep. Those cards are, they're in three different decks and are they all interspersed or there's always one of each offered? I didn't set up the game. Uh, no, there's it's in three different decks. You actually get to choose which one. Am I going to auction off a Robonaut? Am I going to auction oh, okay. off a Thruster? So all the Robonauts are in a deck you, you, and the Thrusters yeah. are in one. Okay, I right. just I don't remember if I do that. But you just auction it and you pay for it with fuel in this game, which is water tanks, WTs. Mm-hmm. We just found it kind of tedious. It just it, it didn't really jive with the other things I was trying to do in the game. I was flying around to Mars. I had this cool solar sail that was carrying me wherever I needed to go. I sent like this really light probe pretty much with people on it just to go lay claim. And now I'm coming home and I'm just auctioning a bunch of patents to be able to figure out what I'm going to do next. Yeah. Since then, we've, you know, we've done additional research on it and talked to people that are more experts in the game and have learned that we were probably not looking at it correctly, that, you know, a lot of those patents are objectively fantastically better than other ones or more useful depending on a type of mission. And that the auction is a gatekeeper to make sure that people don't get the good technology too easy. Yeah. And there is a efficiency economy there that we really weren't paying attention to, like moves. Like if you can get somewhere in six turns and somebody else takes 20 turns to get there because they're auctioning inefficiently, then suddenly just by nature, they're going to be way behind in the game. So there is a there is an efficiency angle to it of getting what you need in the least number of turns and getting out into the black as quickly as you can. And our first playthrough, we were not really paying attention to. So I think once you care about that. At that point, how you manage the auction is going to become infinitely more important and infinitely more interesting. Well, and so I kind of viewed this from a couple of different angles as our gameplay unfolded. I first started, I had a great really early, like kind of mid-tier hauling thruster. Not to carry heavy super weight, but I could just get places. It was like a really fuel-efficient little thruster. So I got that early, and I immediately pretty much headed up to Mars, which is, again, probably really stupid to do. And I get there, and I search, and I find, and I lay claim to three different prospecting sites, which was awesome. And then I head home. Now I'm sitting at, at Earth with my guys who came back from Mars, and I have no water tanks. I have very little technology, and I, I just need to figure out a way to figure out how I'm going to get back to Mars and actually build something. And so now I'd go about spending a couple of turns getting some money, and then I start actually bidding on stuff just to get it. And I spend the next what felt like 
ages of turns. It was probably only 10 turns, eight, maybe. I don't know. The next while, just gathering money and gathering patents. And then I had to back out. What I probably should have done is been a better pre-planner and immediately said, okay, I'm heading to Mars and I'm going to bring everything there to actually build a refinery there so I can refuel my factory. And then I can head out to the next place after that, which would have been more fun. Or, hey, build some better technology and head back to Earth and head somewhere else and have my waypoint out there. But it just it felt so tacked on. What you're doing on your turns was either one of two things. I was either flying amongst the solar system, piloting this awesome, cool spaceship and doing sweet stuff, or I was at Earth getting patents. Yeah, I think the other problem is, too, is that uh, you were going back. You were shuttling back and forth to our next door neighbor. Um, the trip to Mercury is a little longer, and I had a little bit of a slower boat to get there, which I'm not going to say is a good idea. But moving your rocket ship is not counted as one of the actions you can take. So yes. you get to move and you get to take an action every turn. So what I would do is as I was just sailing across the universe, getting to Mercury is every turn I would just take two income, take two income, right. take two income, well, take I, two income. And I did that, and, too. But my boat was so fast. I got there in two turns each way. Right. Just by, right. The, by, so, by, by the necessity of moving it. So I didn't have as much turns in between stocking up on money and playing the thing. So maybe I should have been less good at getting to Mars. Yeah. Or, or gone a little farther. You know, right. Or, yeah, I have that. Because by the time I got to. Yeah. By the time I got to Mercury and back, I actually ha- I had a ton of money because I just get just kept piling up as I was flying to and from. You know, my company was back home doing stuff, making money while I was off jetting about the solar system. Right. So then I was like, oh, this must be an economy game. So after seeing everybody else have all this money, me being super poor after my mission to Mars, I flew home and built a cool refinery on the moon. And I was like, sweet. Now I'm just going to jump to the moon, get a whole bunch of water, take it back from the moon, which now that I'm saying it sounds so stupid. This is probably why it didn't work and I'll have all this money. <laughs> and so I was just flying home all of the all of the fuel from the moon and it didn't work out the best. So here's my complaint, Mark. And I will say I did not design this game. I'm super happy it exists and I'm probably going to give it a really high rating on BGG. Um, yep. Unless the next play, I just absolutely hate it, which I do not see happening. I, I can't see this that game happening. A, nine, no. a high nine. I would rather have this have any other me- mechanism to represent the different progressive technology as it stands. Sure. And the weird thing about this, too, is I love auctions. Auctions are usually my favorite board game mechanism. You know, it'd be interesting is. Yeah. Is, is to tack on the economy from like Eclipse along with yeah, the something space along flight lines. angle of High Frontier. That would be or an interesting hell, game. Just a regular a regular tech tree from like food chain magnet, anything along yeah. those lines, just something like that. And to me, it felt like this whole part of the game is so fleshed out and so interesting. And now we're doing really boring auctions that maybe will range from price from two all the way up to seven. It wasn't even very granular. There was really only like five price options because yeah. occasionally you go for zero, but that felt like you were giving someone away for something for free. I don't know. That's, that's my main takeaway. And I'm probably wrong. I'm sorry. High frontier fans. I still like the game. Don't worry. And I think that's an angle that will absolutely unveil itself to us on subsequent plays is that we will, as we understand the game better and get more specific about the things we're doing rather than just, you know, running around yanking levers, which is more or less what we were right. doing. Well, and it was also, I was, it was pitch, more not saying more you pitched it. Yeah. It, you didn't pitch it poorly, but I thought, okay, this is a space flight game. Oh, I have to do an auction for a lot of part of the game. Maybe I view this as more of an auction game and use that as part of the game instead of this. It's almost in my own head of getting over my own perceptions of what the game should be. So I really want to play it again. It's an auction game with rockets rather than a rocket game with auctions. 
But the Rockets part of it is so cool that it's okay. That's the second thing. (laughs) For sure. So wrapping this one up, we both give it extremely high marks. Loved it. I'm I'm so fascinated on digging deeper into this and learning more about it because it just gave me the itch that I'm dying to scratch on that one. And I'm really looking forward to learning more about this game. Um, How do you get it, Mark? Yeah, so that's the problem. (laughs) This game has not been in print for a while. And Sierra Madre also is a company that does pretty low production runs. You kind of got to buy things when they're for sale. Uh, Phil Eklund, the designer of it, Sierra Madre is sort of his vanity label, and he prints things when he wants to, and he makes copies of stuff when he wants to. And I have heard rumors that there is a fourth edition coming out sometime in the somewhat near future. I don't know what that means, but fourth edition is a revision that improve, continues to improve the rule books and also includes some new modules like space combat and so forth. I can't imagine That's what, what we that need. would be like. And if you don't want to wait for that, I was actually able to get my copy on eBay. I have a third edition copy of it. There are first and second edition copies that are available for quite a bit cheaper, but unfortunately, a third edition copy could very easily run you $150, $200, $250 here in America. I got insanely lucky, and I found a shrink-wrapped copy of it for 50 bucks on eBay about a year ago. Guarantee the person selling it did not know what they had. Right. So I was 100% sure I was being scammed when I bought it and that this was going to be a Chinese knockoff or it was just going to be full of rocks or I, I didn't know. But no, it's a 100% legit, beautifully produced shrink wrap copy of it. And I got super lucky on that one. There is a second way that you can play this one, even if you don't have the physical version. It does exist on Tabletop Simulator, and there is a High Frontier Discord group out there that regularly does teaching games and arranges that sort of uh, experience for people that want to get in and play High Frontier more regularly and don't have the table space or the crew or the ability to play that game in real life. So, yes. But don't ask us anything else about that. We don't. We don't know. We've not, have you been in the Discord group? No, I, I am in the Discord. Group, oh, you so, are. Wow. Um, Never drop mind. Me, I apologize. Yeah, drop me a line on Instagram or drop me a line at marketgamingmoguls.com and I'll try to get you hooked up if that's something you're interested in doing. My apologies for throwing you under the bus. I thought, yeah, I thought no you worries. hadn't been access. I'm, Mark, you do things. I'm happy to help. Me? Oh, no. You know, I didn't. I'll, I'll, I'll hook you up. I'm just going to ask, man. I right. guess you, you didn't know I was on there. <laughs> no. Speaking of top games that you can't get. Yes. <laughs> For everyone else, because you are quite humble about this, Mark has been printing and playing some 18xx games, which, as the listeners know, we are very, very fond of. And Mark, your copies are probably the best that I've seen. We have purchased some games from All Aboard Games. I think they look beautiful as well. I really like the art style of it. But Mark, you've been printing some redraws by Carthinagian on BGG, which we're going to talk about later, and they look spectacular. I've seen every single iteration along the line. You, I think we're on, what is this, V5? Of, yeah, of we've, we've taken a few runs at that one to get it polished out. Right. But, but uh, you've, I'm, you've I'm, I'm on to something now I'm super happy about. Right. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's, you know, my real my real life day job is as a photographer. So as part of that, I'm I'm artistic and I get good at printing things and so forth. And I'm pretty crafty. So I, it just as an exercise, I thought I would be fun to try printing one of these and just see how nice I could actually make it. And my first attempts were a little raggedy. And they gradually got better and I started replacing things and doing things better and better. And I finally I'm on a formula right now that is both easy to do and delivers excellent results. And I thought I would share that with our listeners because our podcast is really about going further down the gaming rabbit hole. And printing and playing is one of those little bits of insanity that is a hallmark of being further down the rabbit hole. So I wanted to just take a few minutes and riff on my experiences with printing and playing 18xx games. This knowledge could absolutely be applied to printing and playing other sorts of games. 
and hope that somebody could find some value out of this. And once again, absolutely willing to share my experience with anybody on that one. I'll post some pictures on our Instagram account as well, Gaming Moguls, if you want to see what some of this stuff looks like. So be sure and check that out. You will be very well rewarded. It looks very pretty. Yeah, absolutely. So what is print and play? Very simply, it's taking files off the internet or drawing them yourself, printing them and making them into a finished game. Why would I want to do that when we live so close to so many excellent local friendly game stores? Well, in most cases, you just can't get some of these things or you can't get them affordably or you just want to make it better than you can make it otherwise or there's improved art on things or for whatever reason you want to make something better than you can get better or cheaper or easier than you can get in another fashion. Also, sometimes you can get things earlier than you could get them otherwise. I was a Kickstarter backer of City of Big Shoulders recently, and that game isn't being published for a year. It's going to be a year before I get that thing in my uh, greasy little mitts. In the meantime, part of the backer kit was to get a set of print and play files so you can make a copy of the game a year before the actual box comes. And so that instantly went into my to make queue so that we can get that rolling a little bit earlier. Cool. So there's a bunch of reasons for doing it. Now, step one, you got to find the stuff. And the best place, if you're not in a Kickstarter situation where they just mail them to you, there are loads and loads and loads of games that are available out there, either public domain or with the permission of the publisher. And the best place to find those I found has actually been Board Game Geek. If you just search for lists of print and play, um, there's a list specifically entitled 18xx print and play. And if you go look for that, there's a couple of dozen 18xx games that have been published out there uh, with the permission of the publisher. And they have all of the files needed to make the game. That includes the map file, includes the share the the shares, the company charters, the hexes that you need, the tokens, the even. logos for the tokens. Yep. Yeah. And even in some cases, designs for the box. If yeah. you want to use that and card backs too, card backs and everything you need to make that all you have to do is print that onto cardstock. And I typically use like 80 pound cardstock to print that stuff out. Then it's a matter of laminating it with either matte or satin lamination uh, material. Uh, it tends to work better than gloss just because of glare. Yeah, and we play in somewhere that's lit by halogen lights or whatever the big, long, white fluorescent lights. Fluorescent, yeah. those so are the ones. It can so get it gets glary. really shiny. Yeah, really glary. Right. There's also websites out there that have, uh, there's a lot of them. Just Google it. Google 18xx print and play, and you'll f actually find quite a few of them. One of the websites that we found that has a ton of stuff on there is one called Kelson.net at 18xx.kelson.net. He's provided, oh, it appears to be about 20 titles with everything you need on there just ready for play. So it's just a matter of getting the files for it and printing them out. Easy. And it's a very stark art design, by the way. I think it's computer generated, actually. We'll call it simplistic. Yeah, minimalist. it's simplistic. But then again, most 18xx games are anyway. Yes. So you have the files from a variety of different places. Like I said, you print them out using inkjet or have them commercially printed. I laminate with what's literally a $20 Amazon laminator and uh, matte lamination sleeves on them. I then roller cut them using just a standard Ulfa roller cutter and a roller cutting mat and a steel rule. Now, the sharp among you will realize that once you make a couple of cuts, the thing falls apart and it's hard to line them up. And blue painter's tape is your friend on that one. You do make one cut, tape the cuts back up to hold the thing back together, make the other cuts and then just peel them apart. And you get perfectly cut hexes every single time. It's super simple to do. By the way, I am not responsible for your carpal tunnel after doing this, so don't <laughs> even talk to me about it. The lamination materials, I got all from Oregon Lamination. I think I bought it straight off of Amazon as I did the cardstock for it. So Amazon really gets you 90% of the way. 
So now that you've made and printed all the things, there are some other things you still need. You need tokens. Where do you get tokens from? My favorite place to get tokens personally is from spielmaterial.de. That's S-P-I-E-L-M-A-T-E-R-I-A-L.de. They're a company in Germany. I probably really misspelled that one, but whatever. Google Um, it. You'll get there if you Google it. Spielmaterial.de. You go there and they sell bulk tokens, dirt cheap. They ship really quickly. And actually shipping to America tends to be very cheaper than you expect too. So for uh, 10 bucks or something like that, I got all the tokens needed for a copy of 18XX. Sweet. I print out the tokens on adhesive paper that I just bought at my local office max and adhesive back paper. I print them on that. I bought a 15 millimeter punch on Amazon. I punch out the tokens, stick them on or punch out the token decals, stick them on the tokens and bam, I've got tokens and they look great. I think you're missing one thing though. The board and the box. Yeah, there you go. This is what I've, I made more iterations on than anything else. I have tried six different boards with varying degrees of success. So step one, I just printed it out. Oh, had a big unrolled map sheet. Crap. That's fine. <laughs> you put it under mark. a sheet of plexiglass and it works great and it's cheap, but it's not that great. <laughs> it's not Tesky quality. <laughs> no. So that was phase one. Phase two, then I printed out in sections and I tried doing it on top of mount board that I got at a Dick Blick's art supply house. Again, that was fine. But the problem is it warped like a son of a gun to the point that when I tried putting hinges on it and so forth, the thing wouldn't even remotely lay flat and it looked completely stupid. And I threw that one away before you even saw that one. Not Tesky quality. Not Tesky quality. Step three was I attempted to put it on foam core board, which is super lightweight and doesn't warp. And this honestly turned out yeah, this was, okay. This was probably the second best because it was pretty economical, correct? It was very cheap. It was very easy to work with. It was pretty quick. I used spray mount, you know, just spray glue for mounting photos to mount the printed out paper on top of there. The challenge with that one is, is that foam core is not very durable. You know, it's very fragile. It gets smushed in. You put your thumb on it too heavily. Now, suddenly you permanently have a dent in your board. Well, it's designed for one time, like elementary school science fairs. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. So what I ultimately found was I found there's a website called BoardGamesMaker.com that sells blank boards and they sell blank boxes. So I realized that the Carthaginian redraws of several 18xx games were all square. They all had a perfect 24 by 24 inch size so that if I ordered a four panel pre-folded board that uh, was 12 by 12, so it folded out into a 24 by 24 inch section, that all I had to do was order the board printing on adhesive vinyl. I could just stick it on there, make a slit for the fold with an exacto knife, and bam, I had a super high quality board that looks and feels not only professional, I'd say better than professional. Like, a, yeah. you know, if you got a professional board that had like a linen texture to it, it feels like that. Yeah, absolutely. And the, and the clarity of the printing is better than what you had at home. For sure. It was really good and it felt pretty durable. Like you didn't feel bad touching it. You know, there's always threads online about how do you seal all aboard games, 18xx games, which are just paper stuck to the cardboard. Right. This will last forever. This is for sure. super durable. And how much did that run you? You know, it was about $15 for the vinyl print from halfpricebanners.com. They're running sales constantly. So just find a good sale on it and or just upload the file and they were happy to print it out. The board in the box together was approximately $10 from boardgamesmaker.com. And um, speaking of box, um, I bought 
12 by 12 boxes, which are about an inch and a half thick. And then I whipped out my trusty sticker paper and uh, got my art going. <laughs> and you made some sweet looking boxes. I designed some boxes with the uh, just found some public domain graphics online, did some typesetting. I actually have a background in typesetting so I can make something look good. Stuck the stickers onto the box and bam, I now have a completely bespoke 18xx game that I'm proud to pull out at any gaming occasion. And soon will I. (laughs) Yeah. Merry Christmas, Jake. Thank you, Mark. So Mark was kind enough to give me an empty box for Christmas with nothing written on it. And I said, what's this? Which got a funny look. And I was like, okay. And then you said, oh, it's going to be whatever 18xx you'd like it to be. I don't know. You tell me what to fill that with. Right. And so (laughs) I don't know which one I'm going to do. We have to talk with J-Max, see which one he wants to get, because three copies of 1889 and our little train Thursday group kind of seems a little redundant. But yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, yeah, that's a little side note on 18xx print and play and just wanted to share how I do it and hope that'll help something and hope somebody down the road. And let me tell you, these things look spectacular lined up in a gaming collection. We love making promises for each other. Why don't you make a little Instagram album of an unboxing of your little your print and play 89 that looks so pretty. Perfect. And uh, while I'm at it, I can probably take a picture of what it actually looks like in my collection, because I know, Jake, you happen to care what a collection looks like. God, probably too much. Uh, so <laughs> you can probably cover this. Uh, Speaking of rabbit holes. <laughs> yeah, it seems like so we talk a lot. Both of us have jobs that um involve us driving and kind of doing mindless tasks for a while. So we just call each other and chat about games, kind of how the podcast came up. Yep. This is pretty much just an episode of uh, our conversations when we call each other. And so I've been constantly moaning <laughs> and complaining about this. Belly aching would be yeah, another way of putting it, way yeah. to put it. About what it is to have a collection and curate it. And what does it mean to own a game? And why do I own games? And like, doing philosophy on it and it's a complete waste of your and my time but that's kind of the goal of when we call each other yeah i think my reaction on the topic was jake why on earth are you worrying about this all right so for a little background so i don't seem that crazy i am crazy but not that crazy i live in a fairly small apartment at least it's fairly small compared to your house mark and i live with my lovely fiance um and i have a little office that i work in um, I work from home and I have one wall in that office that holds all my games and I have no more room to put up any more shelves. I have a five by five Calex shelf from Ikea and that's where all my games got to go. No more, no less. This is the first time I didn't always have that many games before and I had a huge common area that I had my games in at my old house when I was living with some friends and I just totally didn't really worry about it. But now I am very much deeply thinking about it. So to start, I explained what my collection looks like. What does yours look like, Mark? You have a big old closet. So speaking of awesome partners, my my wife is the loveliest woman on the planet. She's incredibly understanding of my obsession with this. More than a guy has a right to be. It helps by the fact that my family is all super into gaming. So that's become one of our go-to family things. So she has let me take over the pantry for my games. Uh, it's a double door pantry in our basement. It's, you know, it's not the one right off the kitchen. It's down in the basement. And it happens to be about five steps outside of my office door. So it's very accessible. Right. But it all goes into there. I also have a shelf in the back room where I keep some of the, shall we say, B-list stuff. Yeah. See, well, you're you're lucky. You have rooms. You have back rooms. I have like four rooms in my apartment, our bedroom, my office, the rest of the apartment. That's it. Yeah. And you, you don't get to sit, you don't get to hide anything behind no, closed doors either. No. And we're going to move soon. We're going to probably buy a house in a couple of years. Um, probably be downtown until then, but I don't have a lot of space for this. So it's really made me think about what games we've got. And so in the last couple of years, I also haven't been very mindful about what makes me buy a game. 
I would buy a game for pretty much any reason, just wouldn't be whether or not the group would play it. I would buy games just to check a box. Oh, I don't have a worker placement game I like. I would buy games that someone was talking about because I'd hopefully play it with it. And my shelf of shame got out of control for at least where I like it to be. Do you think about things like that when you buy games, Mark, or are you just, uh, that seems neat? No, no. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I don't know. I have never bought a game that I can think of that checks a box. Okay. My selection criteria is pretty primal. I look at a game. Do I like it? Do I own another game that's exactly like it? Can I afford it? Will anybody on the planet play this with me? Okay. You know, if I check three out of four of those boxes, it doesn't even have to be four out of four. Yeah, you don't need to afford the game. You'll figure it out. You'll figure it out. Yeah, I'll just make it if I can't afford it. No. (laughs) (laughs) If it checks most of those boxes, I buy it. I don't put a lot, ton of thought into that one. You know, the biggest thought I probably put into it is, can I afford it? You know, it's I I have a budget that I try to stick to. And, um, you know, I'm not just in the buy every game that crosses my path bandwagon. And um, so I do consider that. But for the most part, it's a game I like and it fits in with what I have, then, you know, good times. Interesting. Yeah. So that's kind of gotten out of hand for me. And it's made me realize that I need to cull some games. And I didn't realize this, but I actually have gotten rid of 63 games or traded them away for something or 53, pardon me, in my lifestyle. And that was crazy to me in my lifetime of owning games because I didn't I don't even have that much games. But the fact that I've gotten rid of 53 of them through trades or in the case of exit games, just getting rid of them because they're used, that kind of really, really flabbergasted me. Have you ever thrown out a game just to get some more space? No, I, you know, I have given away games in the past that weren't my favorites. <laughs> so I have called the herd a little bit. Got it. Uh, I I did look, get rid of a copy of Tigris and Euphrates, which I probably just gave some people some anger. Well, know, actually, bad, I, I've yet bad, to play that yeah, game. Some so, anger. But you don't have it, so you yeah, don't have to play it with me. I passed it on to somebody that I knew would appreciate it. Uh, J-Mac is now the owner of that copy. I understand why it's considered to be a great game, and I don't begrudge anybody for loving it. I don't tend to like chessy games, and that one's very chessy to me, and it just sort of gave me a headache, so I thought somebody else could get more love out of it than me. Right. I've never actually thrown a game away before. I've always traded them. I've given them to friends, or I've given them to family. What I've been doing recently is to cut up some space. I've been doing a lot of trades on BoardGameGeek which Mm -hmm. I thought would be kind of interesting to talk about because I've had some mixed success with this. And through digging deeper into the rabbit hole, I realized that there's some standard operating procedure stuff that is not really mentioned anywhere on that portion. And it kind of doesn't really make sense. So might as well explain it. Yeah. And this is something that I, you know, I was aware existed, but I hadn't really considered it as much of a possibility because I've always been in a very one-to-one trade mentality on the, hey, I want something awesome. I got something awesome. You know, let's get your chocolate and my peanut butter together and we're good to go. And I don't have that. The games that I look at that I, I have that I'd be willing to trade are all crap that nobody wants. So it didn't enter my brain that I could trade away some of that stuff. But apparently I am in the wrong on this one. So tell me more. I don't know if you're in the wrong, but so I have done seven completed BGG trades in the last, I think, three or four months. So I've gotten a decent amount Mm -hmm. of traction in the last little bit. So what I was originally doing is BoardGameGeek has this awesome function where you can put games that you have and put them up as a tag for trade. And Mm -hmm. you can flag games as want in trade. And then if you go to BoardGameGeek, there's a tab that you can click that's called trades. You can do a custom search with a whole bunch of different fields. Just click it, find it. And you can find all these different users that have exactly what you want or vice versa. And you can trade each other for those. So I did that. And then I just went down, propose trade, propose trade, propose trade, propose trade. And apparently that's passe. I was apparently being offensive to people, which did not really make sense to me. 
I kind of assumed that this is the way everybody did it. I would get an occasional trade prompt once every few months. So I assume this is kind of how everybody does it. But it turns out the standard operating procedure way to do it is to do a message first. You DM yeah, them. Yeah, that blew my mind. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I guess it does kind of make sense because you don't want to have all these random proposals coming up when maybe you want to discuss or you want to counter offer. And they're somewhat binding, I believe. I haven't really researched it that much. But if you agree to something and maybe you wanted to change it, I think you've already agreed. And then they go into some process where maybe it'll hurt your ranking or your rating on that. And you want to have a good trade relationship. So for the most part, most of my games have been about I've been trading two for one of theirs or vastly over trading something. So for example, I've traded some big box games for some small box games because the way I look at it is I'm just trying to get space on my shelf. If I can get rid of space on my shelf and get a game out of it, heck yeah, that sounds great. So also there was this one wonderful user that I'm actually receiving games from today. They're coming in the mail. And nice. I think is I think the website's called boardgamecoe.com. Mm-hmm. And so what he does is I don't know that much about it, but he's figured out a way to assign values to different games. I don't think it's dollar values, but I think it's kind of a trade value thing. And he was willing to take kind of all of my crap for stuff that I thought was less crap. Okay. I think he or she, I guess, I don't I don't know, operates kind of a warehouse and will pretty much take any trade as long as they're profiting a little bit. And then we'll sell those games or continue that going until they can make some sort of money. I don't know if it's a side hustle or something, but do check it out. And that was probably the best way. I think I traded 10 games for four, but I traded some kind of list games in my honest opinion for some stuff that seems really 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 cool so i would recommend doing that for you that has got me thinking on that topic too because i hadn't considered doing a mini to one trade on people that you know i again i looked at my copies of ticket to ride or carcassonne or some of those and thought yeah, nobody's gonna want that they're they're games that i bought 10 years ago or more they're early editions of them and you know who on earth is gonna want these old editions of these things and obviously i could give them to kids and my son's boy scout troop or something like that that are getting into gaming that's perhaps an angle too but the ability to take even eight games that i haven't played in 10 years and turn them into one game that i'd play next week yeah i think that's i think that's worthwhile for me that is absolutely worthwhile it solves two problems once i mean i do have a fixed amount of space even though i have more space i i do have a fixed amount Mm mm-hmm that is pretty full. So, you know, there are new games I'd like to get and I need to make some room. So if I can get rid of eight and turn it into one awesome game, you know, I need to I realize that I need to spend more time looking into that. Right. And I would I would recommend it. All the people I've done with have been very interesting. And I think it's a way to kind of stretch your board game purchasing dollar. You know, we have these huge collections. And are we going to get that game to the table in the next three or four years? Probably not. Maybe maybe get rid of it and get something that maybe is new or something that you might like. So that's at least the board game trades. There's also something out there called a math trade, Jake. Have you ever done yeah, a math I'm, trade? I, I, I am going to bring that up. So I have done math trades. I've done okay. the millennial frictionless way. So the idea of a math trade is, let's say Mark has a copy of Carcassonne. I have a copy of uh, Blood Bowl. And then my friend Tyler has a copy of Codenames. But I want your copy. You want Tyler's copy. Tyler wants my copy. But none of us want to trade directly. A math trade solves that. None of those are worth the same value either. Correct. So that's how math trades work. It's a big, long train of people trading with another person who's going to trade with another person who's going to trade another person who's going to eventually trade back to you. It helps value things. I know there's a couple of ways to do this. One is like this pretty complicated website that I looked at and I 
thought I wasn't smart enough for. And so I moved on. But there's a millennial easy way to do it. There's this website called Abecorn. It's called HTTPS colon slash slash trade dot Abecorn dot com. And occasionally trades will pop up there. They sometimes are tied in with local cons or sometimes just flagged with just regions. And you can just put up there, put what games you want, and then you easily do a little cross matrix after you filled in your games on what games you're interested in and what games you'll give up for other games. It probably is not going to be direct, but let's say I'm interested in a copy of Arboretum, which is a pretty lightweight card game, but I'm trading three or four games. Maybe some of them I'll flag as okay to trade as long as I get Arboretum or better or something along those lines. But if I'm not going to get something better than that, I'm not going to let go of that game. Sure. It worked out pretty well. I've done two or three of those. They used to run them pretty regularly at Level Up Games in South St. Paul, and I did that a few times and was able to get rid of some games and get some new ones. I would like to dig in more into BGG math trades. I think that'd be something that'd be interesting, but I don't really understand it, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I need you to do this. This is what I, I give you the like heavy lifting things to figure out. Sure. You're better yeah. at computers than me, but Abe Corn worked fine. And I think they do one for every, for everyone's a couple of local cons and some bigger cons too. So look into it. I've just been getting some decent su- success with the board game geek direct trades. So. I haven't needed to do a math trade anytime recently. And luckily, I haven't needed to do a ton of trades. Philosophically, I, I tend to avoid the new hotness immediately. I mean, there's a yeah, few times I get sucked in for sure. So most of the time when I buy a game, I'm reasonably sure I'm going to like it or I've tried it before. So I tend not to have a lot of clunkers. Like I know people are just like, oh, I tried it once. I hated it. I'm trading it now. Right. We're not. Re- we I, don't I usually, usually figure that out before reviewer, I buy the game. Yeah, yeah. We usually are not reviewer style board game buyers. We're not trying all the new hotness. It took us a while to play Root. We did play Best Birmingham right when it was hot. But yeah, but I knew enough about Lancashire knowing that that was a <laughs> there was very little risk of that not being a hit. Absolutely. But yeah, try out these trades. I'm very similar to your philosophy. I just I'm starting to get to the point where I don't want to have as many games and I have a lot of games that I buy for people that aren't me. And I've just decided the Marie Kondo method of does this game bring me joy? Yes, I will yep. own it. If it doesn't bring me joy or it's someone else's in my friend group's favorite game, why do I own it? They should own it. I'll try to offer it them for a really fair price or for free. And if they don't want it, you're gone. See you later, Clank. My wife is a big fan of Marie Kondo. So you and my you and my wife can gather together over a cup of burned bean water and talk about neat and tidy. <laughs> yeah, neat and tidy. Get rid of everything. I love it. The, the amount of joy <laughs> like, I get like from getting rid machines. of things I don't need. Yes. <laughs> no, the coffee machines are great, Mark. I love that you have a nice little espresso pods for me whenever I come over. Yeah, but that's trades. Figure it out. Get rid of some games. Yeah. So anyway, I think that probably wraps things up for us tonight. Great conversations about a variety of different topics. I think our last episode was really, really focused on Oink Games. So it was nice to get sort of a backlog of smaller conversations out of the way. Absolutely. And keep an eye out for Mark's Instagram post. Yeah, fantastic. All right. Also, if you have any questions on anything we talked about tonight or have ideas about better ways to trade or print and play, Love to know more about them. Uh, we can be reached on our guild at Board Game Geek. We can also be reached on Instagram or at Mark and Jake at GamingMoguls.com. So for Mark and Jake, I'm Mark. I'm Jake. Good night, everybody. Night, everybody. This has been the Gaming Moguls Podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klappenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. If you like the Gaming Moguls Podcast, please tell a friend. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram at Gaming Moguls. Reach us via email, jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. Keep your eyes open for the next episode of The Gaming Moguls, and thank you for listening.